Hey babe, did you know that using a great alternative light source doesn't cost a billion dollars or look like a suitcase anymore? Surely that's not true, but if you can give me more information, I'll be inclined to believe you. Well now, you can get a pocket-sized blacklight from Taction USA that works just as well as a large ALS, an alternative light source. It works so well, you'll never go back to any other ALS. It's lightweight and literally fits in your pocket. Made out of aluminum, so it's durable, it will last you a lifetime. You can find the professional blacklight at TactionUSA.com for $29.99. Ships quickly, and your order comes from Taction USA's Amazon store, so it's easy to order. Taction USA is run by law enforcement for law enforcement. You should check it out today and get yours. Get yours right now, today, at TactionUSA.com. Welcome to Crossing the Tape, a true crime podcast. As always, I'm Hillary. I'm Brendan. And we thank you for joining us today. So a little bit about us, in case you don't know. Um, for those new. For those new. Those new listeners. First of all, thank you for listening. Please come back. Yes. <laughs> um, we want to tell you a bit about us. So I am a former crime scene investigator and, a cur- and currently a cold case investigator. And Brendan... Currently a... Active member of law enforcement at a place. At a place. That's all you need to know. That's all you gotta know. Right. However, our meeting story is a bit different than most people's, and we actually we are a married couple, and we actually met at a homicide scene that we were both working. I was gonna say skydiving, but I guess the real story is more fun. No, it's more fun. Yeah. Especially for this podcast. Oh yeah. So, for those of you, you're all caught up to speed, we're married, we're involved in investigation, and we have a story for you that's quite interesting. Yes, today's story will be the first of a two-part episode on John George Haig, the acid vampire of Crawley. Hmm. Acid vampire, you say? I do. Uh, to put you in the right mindset, think gross and breaking bad. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good description. There's a little bit of that. So on the afternoon of February 20th, 1949, Miss Constance Lane entered the police station in Chelsea, England, and we're going to do our best to avoid any silly accents, because this is a serious topic, <laughs> and I'm not going to do it. No matter how many times you insist that I speak in a jolly old English accent. I didn't know that was on the table. I would have asked. Not see. (laughs) This isn't a clown show. We're gonna we're gonna talk right. All right. Speak properly. That's what I said. Mm -hmm. Miss Constance Lane entered the police station in Chelsea, England, to report her friend, Mrs. Olive Henrietta Olivia Robarts Durand Deacon, missing. Did you get all that? I did. <laughs> I had Olive to process Henrietta it, but Olivia. I did. What a sequence there. Olive Henrietta Olivia. Yeah, but... It's a lot of olive. Well, it's probably a family name. That was very prevalent back then. Olive Henrietta Olivia, her mother would say. <laughs> Maybe she just did, you know, O-H-O. I don't know. O-O. <laughs> R-D-D. No. Poor woman. <laughs> Anyway, she's she's fine. Hmm. Mm. 
She hadn't been seen in two days, and this was certainly out of character for Olive. Olive was a wealthy 69-year-old widow who cherished her social time at the Onslow Court Hotel, where she resided. Police Sergeant Lamborn was assigned to the investigation and quickly took note of the slick and debonair man who drove Constance to the station. He seemed to be a bit too chipper, given the... Uh, well, since he was supposedly meeting Olive on February 18th, but she didn't show up. Now he's driven her friend to the station to report her missing, but he's just having a great time regardless. He's not worried about her. No. Oh, he's terribly worried, but he's just such a such a spry, happy man. Hmm. Red flag number one. Mm. As Sergeant Lamborn conducted interviews at the Onslow Court Hotel... She learned a bit more about this smooth-talking dude. He was also a resident of the high-class hotel, but unlike many of the uh, other wealthy patrons there, he often neglected his bills, and though he was kind and personable, many of the guests didn't really trust him. Hmm. This man, they'd learned, was John George Haig, and his lack of distress in light of his missing friend made him a suspect in his in her disappearance now we got a charming fella here mm -hmm. and a missing lady mm -hmm. what do you think as a as an, a bit of an analyst what do you think of like the honey versus vinegar mm. argument but in the mindset of serial killers and abusers like rather than brute force gun to your head kind of thing sort of using charm, charm to get close to someone. Well, I think it's prevalent. I mean, we can look at many, like Ted Bundy mm -hmm. and other perpetrators that were serial criminals, that they use their sweet charm, you know, to lure somebody in. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's usually, it seems like it's a trait that happens with perpetrators that are of higher intelligence. Yes. Um, or they may not have the means now, but they came from money or something. Mm -hmm. They, that seems to be more prevalent. Yeah. Um, it doesn't, you, not always, but it doesn't seem like serial perpetrators that are, have a low IQ, they don't really work that way. Yeah. They don't have that manipulative no. ability to. Be, right. Cause and, it is manipulative. That's yeah. the basis of it. And that's the point. And this guy is kind of like an English Ted Bundy. Yeah, that's what I was thought with my research. People like him. He's good at talking to people, getting close. They invite him to things, and well, nobody's any the wiser that he's up to no good. Right. And until it's too late. And obviously, we don't have a photo for you right he on here, but or, you know, I'm holding it up to the <laughs> microphone. But if that helps you, it doesn't work that way, babe. <laughs> but. It, his picture, if you if you Google his name, you know he looks like just a like a well respected man. Yeah, he's he doesn't he's have well dressed. Yeah, he liked his high high end hotel. Even classy cars. Right. Even his eyes don't have anything. If you look at his picture initially, that's a red flag. He didn't you know? have the evil eyes. No. Yeah, he's very smooth and suave. Right. I, I think I would say. Using the charm and friendliness, that's, for a serial killer, that's at least as successful or as useful as 
Yeah. You know, attacking well, someone in the night, dragging them away kind of thing. Well, and it, I think it's pro- it probably even works better because they gain trust. Mm-hmm. And then they gain insight into that person's life. Yeah. And their routine. And they, you know, obtain trust with family and friends. Right. And it goes on a deeper level than just a, just a random attack. Yeah. Even if it's a, an attack that somebody was stalking somebody and they kind of knew their routine. But mm-hmm. if you're actually in it, you're in the environment, you're going to have a lot more insight. You know, if that's your, your goal is to harm, you're going to get a lot more information. Right. And a lot further if you're charming and wedge Rather your way in. creeping on someone, following them mm-hmm. around and leaping out of the bushes kind of thing. Right. And he's a bit of a con man, too. Yes. We'll get to in just a second. But John Haig was born into a conservative Protestant home, and they, his parents raised him sort of cut off from the outside world. He was able to go to school, but that was it. No friends over. Yeah. No nothing. He actually, during his childhood, I don't know if you found it or not, he had recurring religious nightmares. Yes. And that was something that stood out to me, like that might have mm-hmm. been the beginning of of things. Yeah, he excelled at playing piano, which yes. he apparently taught himself at home, because what else was a boy to do if he wasn't allowed to interact with anyone else? Right. He wasn't really allowed to have friends because his uh, the particular sect that his parents were part of, they preferred an austere lifestyle. Hmm. So, no fun, I guess that means? Uh, I guess. He learned to play the piano, and he had terrible nightmares that Mm -hmm. all had uh, religious themes. Mm -hmm. At the age of... And both his parents were engineers. Yes. So, at the age of 21, he started to apprentice at an engineering firm. But he got the boot after he was accused of stealing from a cash box. Mm -hmm. And Hag didn't learn his lesson there. And... dedicated the rest of his life to trying to get his filthy mitts on other people's money, eventually developing a new set of skills, which he relied on to make a dishonest living. I understand you've got a healthy dose of the details of his misdeeds. True, I do. And you want me to go into a bit of his marriage, too? Yes. Okay. So, after he got fired from his internship, he started to forge documents and taught himself a new skill that way. And his marriage was, um, didn't last very long. And, you know, I couldn't find a lot about where they actually met, did you? A young lady named Beatrice Hamer. Hamer. I found that, but I didn't find exactly where they met. Uh, If I'm not mistaken, they met at church. Okay. Right? That sounds yeah, right. I think that's what what I had, is that okay. they met through the church, um, and both his parents and her parents disapproved, mm-hmm. because they moved pretty quick. Yeah. And they were, she was in her early 20s at the time, and she liked his charm. And, you know, again, it goes back to that, what we were saying. Right. She liked the charm and she his... You couldn't tell he was a money-thieving Right. <laughs> And, but soon after it was reported that she was quite uncertain about his behavior. So it sounds like you said they jumped the gun, they got married. She started to have uh, second thoughts. Uh, Yes. So even though she had that gut feeling, which you should always listen to, Mm -hmm. she didn't. 
and she still married him in 1934. Not long after the, they were married, he went to prison for fraud. Classic. Yes. Classic John Hague. Right. Well, in prison, his wife had a, their baby, which she gave up for adoption and left John. Yeah, she knew there was no uh, real future for the mm-hmm. two of them. But while he was in prison, he still went <clears throat> to further and tried to scam her in a little bit of a way. Because he only saw her once while in prison, and when you know she told him that she was leaving him and giving their baby up for adoption, he told her that they weren't officially married anyway. And that was a lie. They were. Right. He told her our marriage was never official because I was already married to someone yes. else. Yes. Yeah. So he was he was lying, and you know he's. You'll soon find he's a perpetual charmer slash liar, a and snake. They because of that they never actually got divorced. That's true. So he didn't. was technically, for the rest of his life, still wed to right Miss Beatrice Hamer. So, in prison, he was still involved in illicit activities. You know what a surprise. How do you how do you manage to do that uh, in prison? I guess wow. he he just you know perfected his craft. Um, and later he was out. Did you find what his sentence was that first time? Uh, I didn't see anything about okay. the first sentence. I don't think it was very long. I don't think so either. I think it was a few months. And once he was out, he moved to London in 1936 mm-hmm. and became a chauffeur to William McSwan. Oh, McSwan. McSwan. He was a wealthy businessman who was the owner of amusement arcades, and John helped with other duties on the property and, you know, drove them around, mm-hmm. he and the wife. Early on, he decided, John, decided he wanted to go after rich women and... It was said at one point that he said if there were no corpses, there was no crime. So he already had his mind set on his ultimate goal. Yeah. And he, he, I guess his idea was shack up with a wealthy mm-hmm. older lady and either wait it out if it wasn't going to take long or right. just, whoops, she disappeared, but right. he's stood to inherit everything. But he was planning for a long time because he was experimenting with sulfuric acid on mice. Mm-hmm. And other small animals to try to so he had an idea of how to get rid of a body too. Well, and that was in the uh, the prison's metal working shop. Yes, and I guess that sulfuric was, acid yeah. is used to cure metal, but he would capture mice or mm-hmm. have other prisoners bring him mice, probably in exchange for a cigarette or something. I don't know prison yeah. money. Uh, and he found that to dissolve a mouse in sulfuric acid. That only took half an hour. Oh, really? I yeah. didn't see that part. So he, he kind of <laughs> used that as his basis for, Okay. well, if I was, how big is so a mouse compared again. to the average person, and how long would it need? What a messed up mind. Yeah. He's, pretty, he's a pretty pretty gross dude. Right. So, back to the mixed ones. Um, while in their employment, he also maintained some of the amusement park machines. And it was at, it was at a time later that he posed as a lawyer named William Cato Adamson. And I don't know why that's the chosen name, especially the middle. I guess it sounded good. William C. I guess. Oh, it was Cato with a C. Yeah. Not K-A-T-O. No, it was with a C. Mr. Cato. Yeah. So while he was... While he was at Mr. Adamson, he sold fraudulent stock shares from the estates of his deceased clients. So he had... He was building 
clientele mm-hmm. as, as an attorney, yeah. as a phony attorney. A solicitor. Yeah, and it sounded like he was an estate lawyer, quote-unquote. So when, of course, an estate lawyer has, you know, their primary job is to handle people's wills and estates. So probably most of his clients were elderly. And once they died, he would sell fraudulent stock shares based out of estates. On their estate. Yes. Which is nice. And I don't at think below, I've ever even heard of that. No. That you can buy shares in someone's estate. No, at below market rates. Yeah, but that was another time, too. You have to think about that. That's true. And this is England. This is yeah, it's old England, money. Old, old money. Old, old money. They've got huge estates. You know, they could be like the Vanderbilts with, you know, several mansions around the country. Right. So we're not talking like they had a house. Yeah, and, you know, talking they own a large piece money. of the countryside. Yeah. And you're able to uh, sell off those shares Mm-hmm. Probably cash. Yeah, and it said at below them. market rates. Well, yeah, he didn't pay anything for them. Well, yeah, he's, <laughs> he's telling these people, I can get you a sweet deal. Right. You could own one-tenth of the, you know, whatever estate. The estate. So his scam was soon uncovered by someone who noticed he had misspelled a name on his letterhead. So a stupid mistake. Again, <laughs> a stupid criminal mistake. And I think that's great, too, is that... Yeah. <laughs> I just imagine someone reading through the paperwork and going, wait a minute. <laughs> That's not right. You don't they spell Jones with a G. Through their monocle. Wait a second. I say. <laughs> and that unraveled his whole well, stock bogus enterprise. Yeah, and he received a four-year prison sentence for it, for fraud. Oh, four years? Yeah. Oh, boy. And so, this was in... 1936 was when he started with the mixed ones. Okay, so sometime shortly So sometimes, after. yeah, after that. Yeah, I don't think... I think uh, what I saw was he managed to get away with that for a few months. Yeah. So it's not it like he very built long. A, a career on this fraud. Well, and it, it seems like it would be very easy to track that one. I mean... Well, you look for the guy who keeps misspelling things in his letterhead. Yeah. Idiot. What a fool. Mm-hmm. So, as far as, as far as scams, that's what I found... For the most part. Did you find anything else? I mean, some of the deaths we'll get into have scams. Yeah. But I didn't want to get too far ahead. Um, yeah, the liquidated estates and all that. And I think there was there was a similar racket that he ran, um, I think, involving cars. Or like the purchase okay. of cars. But he was just like writing phony checks. Phony checks. Endorsing them to himself over like vehicle sales or something. Uh, but after that... After his prison sentence mm-hmm. for his small-time fraud, I mean, that was probably pretty lucrative for a little bit, and then yeah. all that money was gone when he got arrested. And now he knows that mice will dissolve an asset in a half hour. Right. And he's an okay fraudster. So he's got to put all those skills to use now that he's out. Well, in 1943, after his release, uh, Haig rented a basement workshop on... Gloucester Road in London and by chance he ran into William McSwan at a pub mm-hmm. and he reunited with the McSwan family because while he was with or working for William he got to know William's parents too yes everybody liked him yeah he charmed the pants off of everyone mm-hmm. William Sr. Mrs. William McSwan William Jr. his wife they all liked him. Yeah, he was just a great dude, and everybody was happy to have him around. So when they bumped into each other, 
he was reunited with the McSwan family, and he learned that they had this continually growing wealth because of their uh, property investments mm. that they were happy to tell him all about. <laughs> Everything's going great for the McSwan family. I said too much. Yeah. That's... <laughs> goes back into analysis and mm-hmm. victimization. Maybe victimology. Don't, maybe don't... Yeah, victimology. Maybe don't tell the desperate stranger who just got out of prison, man, we are just we're made of it. money. He decided this would be a perfect opportunity to practice his no-body, no-conviction theory. Mm -hmm. So in September of 1945, Haig invited William McSwan Jr. to his apartment, where he bludgeoned him to death and placed his body in a 40-gallon barrel. He then filled the barrel with sulfuric acid and let it sit for two days before returning to find that McSwan was now McSludge. Haig poured the goo into a floor drain in the workshop. Gross. Yeah. But nothing left. Yeah. No, he just poured it down. Yeah. Just all the uh, remnants well, and the acid just and right see, into the sewer. See, that was then. Like today, you, when investigators would look down those drains yeah, after a while. Even if it were months, they test. could still test for something even the minu- most minute. But back then... But with the acid, would they get a, a uh, proper that's true. sample, even yeah, if they got a big swab, yeah, it would probably return mainly just as the acid. That's true. It would be compromised. And then all he's got to say is, oh yeah, I do some metal working. Yeah. I'm not very good at it, so I poured all my acid down the drain. <laughs> yeah. It might be a... hard to, I mean, unless you find bits of something like that are definitely human material. Yeah, that's yeah, true. But after two days, there was no more McSwan, and he poured him and the acid into the workshop's floor drain. And when the McSwan parents got a bit curious about, hey, uh, you were the last one to see our son, right? You know where he is? He told them, well, given that it's, you know, wartime in England. Oh, yes, the scam. He said, he, uh, your boy there, he traveled to Scotland because he knew he was going to get drafted into military service. So he's... So he fled the country because he didn't want to go to war. And a bit later, in July of 1945, the McSwan parents again began to suspect there was something more afoot because the war was wrapping up and winding down by then and he hadn't returned from Scotland. But didn't he tell them he was visiting? Visiting? The son was visiting him. Oh, I didn't see that. Yeah. I saw he, that he went to Scotland, but... He said that... Eventually, he said that he's... It, what I read said he scammed them by saying that their son was in his basement, and he was still kind of hiding, waiting for things to cool <laughs> oh, off. He couldn't... So, he can't come see you right, right now. So you can come see him in my basement, is what he told them. Oh, okay. That would make sense as yeah. to how. But uh, in the in-between time, after McSwan was dead and the parents thought, our boys in Scotland. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Haig moved into McSwan's house and enjoyed the luxury life of his big, beautiful home. Ugh. He just kind of assumed his his residence. Ugh. Yeah. So he's living in their son's house, and they're like, hey, man, this is a little weird. And I guess that's where he tells them, well, he just came back, mm-hmm. and if you'd like to pay him a visit, he's been hiding in my basement. Well, this was, of course, a ruse. Mr. Mm-hmm. and Mrs. McSwan 
came to the basement, and one by one, he brought them downstairs to mm -hmm. meet the son, but they both met the same fate. Right. And Haig used his forgery skills to sell off the McSwan's properties and get McSwan Sr.'s pension money. Mm -hmm. So that netted him about 8,000 euro, which from what I've found is about 270,000 U.S. dollars in today's money. Mm. And from there, John Haig became a gambling man. Mm-hmm. And gamblers always need money. Yeah, and he blew pretty much all of that money by the summer of 1947. Mm -hmm. And I believe that brings us to the end of part one of the Acid Vampire Saga. Mm. We will be back again soon with part two. If you haven't yet, please sign the crime scene log and sign out. You're not stuck in there. Thanks for listening. And we will be back soon. Goodbye. Stay safe. One last thing before you go. We got a few questions for you. Are you interested in learning more about investigation? Are you interested in becoming a private investigator or a security professional? Take a look at the courses the National Investigative Training Academy, also known as NIDA, N-I-T-A. You can find a complete list at their website, investigativeacademy.com. We are now proud brand ambassadors for NIDA. I've been writing courses for them for almost three years now, and I have more coming soon. Along with my classes, you will find other fantastic in-depth courses on a variety of topics from professionals, including investigation, surveillance, report writing, security, and more. When you sign up at investigativeacademy.com, make sure you mention you heard about them from Brendan and Hillary on the Crossing the Tape podcast. If you need more info, Check out links and a special code on our Podbean website and on our YouTube channel by simply searching Crossing the Tape.